I hope that you have enjoyed the current sermon series that we have been focused on entitled In the Beginning. And we've been in this sermon series now for a number of weeks as we are jumping into the fall season and now through some of the fall season and also this new beginning of a pandemic reality and what it means to do life and to share in ministry in that kind of reality. Today is the last week that we're gonna focus on this particular sermon series. And so as we get ready to do that this morning, let me invite us to share in a word of prayer. Almighty God, this day, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, shaking us to new life in you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My friend Jax is in first grade. And unfortunately for Jax, he recently had a mishap. He was doing some gymnastics and he took a nasty spill. And he ended up breaking his arm pretty badly, badly enough that he needed surgery for it because his arm in its broken state was no longer functioning the way it was intended to function. Now, no doubt the surgery had to be somewhat painful. However, the first time I saw Jax after his surgery, he had the biggest smile on his face. He even let me sign his cast, which I was honored to be able to do. That cast, is currently covering his brokenness in his arm. That cast is helping to bring healing within him. That cast is providing a covering that will eventually provide a new beginning for Jax, a new beginning in which his arm will be restored to do all the good things it was intended to do in this world. Things like playing and building and creating, all to help make the world ultimately a better place. If we take a look at Jax, we can define his life now at this point as life before his broken arm, life now with the broken arm, and eventually there will be life after the broken arm. And in short, that's really what we see in the opening chapters of Genesis that we've been studying now all these number of weeks, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We see humanity with life in the garden with God before there was any brokenness in the world and creation. We then see the encounter where brokenness came into creation, and we start to get a glimpse of what will happen after the brokenness in creation. And throughout this series, we've referenced Tim Keller a number of times. He offers some really helpful work here in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And he lifts up some images that I think are really helpful when we think about the idea of brokenness beforehand, brokenness during, and brokenness after. I don't know if you remember, but a number of weeks ago, we gave the, the uh, understanding when we're talking about the Hebrew language, that the Hebrew mindset focuses more on images than on words. And there are a couple images I want us to really think about, again, in relation to brokenness beforehand, brokenness during, and brokenness after. And those three images relate to what we're gonna call the reach, the cover, and the sword. All right, so three images, the reach, the cover, and the sword. And again, these images are gonna help us understand the human condition and how we can have hope in the midst of life, no matter what's going on. So first of all, let's focus on this idea of the reach. And for this one, I wanna ask us to focus on Genesis chapter three, verse 22. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live 
forever. So really, this verse here in Genesis 3.22, it's a summary of what happened earlier, actually in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And at that point, Adam and Eve are still in their non-broken state. They're walking with God daily in the cool of the evening. There's no shame. There's no problem. There's a harmony. Creation is full and good and playful and wonderful. And then you'll recall they had this conversation with the serpent, and after that conversation with the serpent, Adam and Eve take actions which are going to lead to brokenness and sin entering into God's good creation. And so after that conversation with the serpent, it's then that Adam and Eve decide to disobey God. How? By reaching for the fruit that they were instructed not to eat. There's a whole lot that's going on here in this description. And on one level, there's a deep irony for Adam and Eve at this point. Because if you think about it, Adam and Eve succeeded in getting what they wanted. They were reaching for the fruit and they got it. They, and then when they got it, they, they did become like God, knowing good and evil. Now we should pause the story right here for a moment because you would think if they're reaching for something they want, and they succeed in getting it, shouldn't the next sentence in the story read, and so it was good, it was even better than before because they got what they wanted? Or shouldn't it say something like, and finally with the reach, they were satisfied? Or maybe after getting it, after the reach, they lived happily ever after because they got what they wanted. But instead of the dream being fulfilled in reaching, it actually became a nightmare for them. They got what they wanted, and as soon as they did, they were immediately filled with shame. So that the reach resulted in isolation, not fulfillment, in alienation rather than satisfaction. They reach for what they think they want. They reach for what they think will make them happy, and it results in the exact opposite. And they reach because they can't accept the fact that God has already given them enough. Adam and Eve have the entire garden at their disposal. All of creation is at their feet. There's only one tiny thing off limits. They're given 99% and yet somehow it's not enough. They're not content. They want even that last tree and so they reach for more. They just could not accept God's enough. There's a scholar named Marty Solomon who refers to something called the lullaby effect. And he says that when we've heard something enough times or read something enough times, we tend to just kind of start to smooth over some details that at first glance, they might be kind of odd, but because we've read them so many times, we're just kind of lulled to sleep on how weird they might actually be. So this encounter in the story of Genesis is probably one of those stories for us. If we've heard it many times, we tend to lose the impact of some of the more irregular details in the story. So back up with me here for just a moment. Who was it, again, that helped prompt the reach by Adam and Eve? We know the answer. It was the serpent. But do you remember anything peculiar about the serpent? <laughs> One of the things that we tend to miss, even though we read it and hear it many times, is that this is a serpent who also talks. So we have a talking snake in the story. I mean, I repeat, a talking snake. A snake who talks just like a human being. Now, that's kind of weird when you stop and think about it, but we, we often don't think about it. This snake is oddly human. He reasons, he relates, he's smart. The snake walks. 
Uh, notice the snake is not crawling in the story. This snake is oddly human in nature, and yet we're told clearly in Scripture that the snake is a beast and not a human being. Adam and Eve are human, but not the snake. Adam and Eve are made in the image of God, but not the snake. So what makes something human versus a beast? Well, we know that human beings have an intellect, but oddly, so does the serpent here. And we know that human beings have the ability to relate, but so does the serpent here. We're told that human beings are made in the image of God, that that is what makes them human. But what exactly then does that mean to be made in the image of God that would distinguish them from the beast of a serpent? Well, one of the names given for God is the, is the Hebrew term El Shaddai. And it's a rather difficult term to translate. Usually when we translate it, we translate it as God Almighty. But in later Jewish tradition, it can also be translated as God that said enough. Or more literally, the God who knows when to say enough. And as we've already seen in our study in Genesis so far, this is a God who did know enough. This was a God who knew when to stop creation, when to say enough, when to say enough is enough. This is a God who knew when to stop and rest and enjoy. This is a God who knew at the end of each day when to pause and say, now that's enough. I'm just going to enjoy it. This is a God who said at the end of a week, this is enough. And now I'm going to pause and rest and enjoy Sabbath. So let's tie all of this together. We serve a God of enough. And we are human beings made in the image of God. So part of being a human being made in the image of God means we also have the ability to say enough. We live into our humanness, our God imageness, if we can say it that way, when we accept enough. And when we accept enough, then we're content, then we are fulfilled, we are at peace. But when we throw that image away, being made in the image of God, we do that when we do not accept enough. When we reach for more, we are essentially saying, it's not enough. I'm not okay. I'm not content. And when we do that, we throw our humanness away, made in the image of God, and instead exchange it for being more like a beast. Why? Because beasts live by impulse and desire alone. Beasts do not have the ability to say, enough. Beasts only want more and more and more. They can never get enough. Many of you know our dog, Duke. We've referenced Duke a number of times. He's a great dog in so many ways. He's fun and he's cute and he's smart. He actually knows our routines better than we do. But I have to tell you, Duke is so food driven. He would eat and eat and eat to the point of making himself sick if we let him. Why? Because ultimately he's a beast. When Adam and Eve reach for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it represents this sense of acting on impulse and desire, of not having enough. In short, they're acting like beasts and no longer as human beings. God in Genesis saying to Adam and Eve as human beings, I want you to help me take care of this creation. You are trustees and partners with me in my good creation. Help me in that. But at the same time, remember that in this garden, this one tree, by not eating of it, it will remind you of your humanness, that you have enough and you don't have to reach for even more. One of the most popular questions I tend to hear with Genesis is, why did God put that one tree in the garden? If God knew what was gonna happen with Adam and Eve, why in the world did he put the tree there? 
Well, I think on a daily basis, that tree gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to obey God on a daily basis and therefore reflect their love and desire to follow God and God's ways. At the same time, what we also see based on what we've just talked about here this morning is that that tree, by not eating it, it helped Adam and Eve learn to say enough. But conversely, when they reached for it, they were throwing away their humanness, acting more like a beast because they were saying, God, what you've given us is not enough. So when they obeyed God, it was their way of saying, God, you've given us enough. And when they disobeyed God, it was their way of saying, it's no longer enough and we're gonna reach for even more. It wasn't designed to be there as a temptation to Adam and Eve. It was a way to be there every day so that Adam and Eve could honor God so that they could learn every day to say, God, we have enough and we do not need to reach for more because human beings have the distinct ability to say enough. God, you've given us enough. That tree is God's way of saying to you and I, you are more than your desires. You are not a beast. You are not an animal. You are God's beloved. You are made in the image of God. Do not believe the lie of the enemy because if you do, you will reach and you will stretch. And in the process, you will trade your made in the image of Godness for that of a beast. You will trade good for evil. And isn't that all of us? What we think so often will fill us only leaves us wanting more. The drug addict never has enough drugs. The greedy person never has enough money or stuff. The egomaniac never has enough attention given to them. See, God was not holding out on Adam and Eve here. God was not setting them up for failure. God was helping them live into the fullness of their image of God likeness by being human with that tree. And are we so different than Adam and Eve? Of course not. Every time we reach for more, we're saying, God, you've not given us enough. Every time we reach for more, though, it leaves us empty and wandering and searching. We all do this on a regular basis. We all want more love, more success, more work, more wealth, more power, more you name it. All these things we think will fill us, but ultimately when we reach, it leaves us empty. And when it leaves us empty, it then fills us with shame. And when it fills us with shame, we do things we never intended to do. So you have this image of the reach, which then leads us to a second image, the image of the covering. Then we hear this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. It says this, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and his wife and clothed them. And so in Genesis 3, 21, we hear this covering of skins and for Adam and Eve covering over them. What's going on here with the clothes? Well, essentially, this is the theme that we've seen in Genesis 2 earlier. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, remember that Adam and Eve were naked, but they were unashamed at that point before the fall, before the brokenness. Then in Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, they reach for the fruit, and then their eyes are open. They're made with coverings for themselves and their own effort. And why are they making coverings now? in order to cover their nakedness. There is a lot of nakedness going on here at the beginning of Genesis, but so much of it has nothing to do with the physical nature of who they are. It's much more about preventing others from seeing us as we really are. 
we don't just cover ourselves in a physical way, we also cover up the ugly parts of who we are so that others will not see it. And we do that because of the shame that we go through. Because of our shame, we don't want others to know our mistakes or our brokenness, and so we do everything to cover ourselves up. Here, Adam and Eve, they're not traumatized by somebody seeing them in a general manner in their nakedness. They are traumatized at having to be seen in their shame and makes them feel embarrassed and unworthy. They want to hide. And again, are we much different? In our own sense of inadequacy, we'll do almost anything to cover up so that people don't see our shame. We all create our own forms of coverings. We all create our own fig leaves at times, hoping to cover our shame so other people won't see it. Only for us, what do the fig leaves of covering that we create look like? How about the fig leaf of work? Why do we work all the time? To feel valued. How about the fig leaf of not saying no to others? Why can we not bear the look of disappointment on their face if we say no to them? because we desire to be accepted. How about the fig leaf of so desperately needing to be attractive in one way or another? Why? Because we have to feel desirable in some way. What about the fig leaf of the refusal to open up to others and share how we really are? And we don't do that because we wanna feel safe and we're not sure we'll feel safe if we share how we're really doing. How about the fig leaf of us needing to blame somebody else in life rather than accepting responsibility myself so that somehow we can feel justified? These are all fig leaves. Our perfectionism, our makeup, our desire to be useful all the time, our desire for approval, our constant working, they're all fig leaves and they don't work. Our fig leaves do not work. They always fall apart. They're never quite enough. They always remain drafty and ill-fitting because on our own, we can never cover our own shame. But here's some good news. We don't have to because God covers the shame. And God covers the shame, not with fig leaves, but with animal skins. And what's the difference between a fig leaf and an animal skin? To understand that, now we will get to a third and final image, which is the image of the sword. And so look with me in Genesis 3:24. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, what is the sword doing here in Genesis? The sword now is going to keep Adam and Eve out of the garden. So it's not a door that's keeping them out, it's a sword that's keeping out. Why a sword? Well, there are different answers we could give here, but one of the things that I am struck by is that in scripture so often, the sword represents the justice of God. So this reference to the sword in Genesis chapter three, verse 24, it's the first time we hear of a reference to the sword in scripture. And then there's going to be other places in scripture where we also hear of a sword. So for example, we could look at a lot, but look with me at just a couple. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 51, we hear of Jesus and his companions coming out of the garden of Gethsemane. Those opposed to Jesus are going to take him away, but in an effort to save Jesus, this is what we hear, verse 51. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. What's happening? 
They're using the sword in an attempt to keep evil away from Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the very last time that we hear of a reference to the sword is in Revelation chapter 19, verses 20 through 21, where we hear of God's power overthrowing the forces of evil in the world. And specifically, we hear this. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. The two of them were thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. At the very end, it's the sword that will be used to kill the beast. The sword is being used to bring justice to the beast. So we see the sword keeping the beastness of sin out of the garden that began in Eden. And the sword here at the end of scripture, we also see is gonna keep the beast out of the city of God in Revelation. And so in both instances, we see the sword keeping evil away, keeping shame away, keeping the less than human away. That's not going to be allowed in the garden, and it's not going to be allowed in God's holy city. So anytime that we see this sense of justice, when it comes to justice, we know that there has to be a sense of debt being paid. That's, that's what justice is, to account for something that has been done wrong. If you think about it in legal terms, say, for example, you steal a bagel from a store there's gonna be a small debt to pay. Maybe you have to put in some community hours. Maybe you have to pay back the debt and then add a little bit of interest on top of it. There's some form of debt repayment. However, if you kill someone, you don't just put in a few community hours. It becomes your life for theirs. You spend a lifetime in jail or worse, blood for blood. For Adam and Eve, Life has just been disrupted. It has been stolen. That which was good is no longer fully good. And the goodness that's been broken, it's not just between them and the snake. It's not just between them as husband and wife. It's not just between them and creation. It is between them and God. How in the world are they going to ever pay that back? This major breaking, this major rift in what God has created has now occurred. And the sad news is they cannot pay it back. Their blood, the blood of Adam and Eve, is not able to pay back the debt. And so this sword is going to keep them out of the Garden of Eden because there's no way they can pay the debt of injustice that has now occurred. But here's the good news. Adam and Eve cannot pay the debt, but God can pay the debt. God's blood can pay back the debt and do what our blood is not able to do. God offers God's own son, the blood of Christ that can cover us all. It's not human blood that will create the way, it's God's blood. So instead of putting us under the sword, God used another to go under the sword of justice, somebody else who would be cast out, somebody else who would be stripped down and naked and full of shame on our behalf, somebody else who would go under the nails and the thorns to pay with his blood the justice that only he could offer and serve, and his name is Jesus. So that by his blood, we are healed. We are covered. This is why we hear in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, since now we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Do you remember what I asked you earlier? What's the difference between being covered with fig leaves versus the animal coverings? You and I try to cover ourselves with ill-fitting fig leaves. But what does God do? 
In Genesis 3.21, we hear, again, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. What is God doing? God is covering them with skins, with the blood of sacrifice. And he does the same for us today. God covers us with the blood of his sacrifice. And this is why we can have hope. This is why death will never have the final say. A few weeks ago, I appreciated this reflection in my devotions uh, offered by Nikki Gumbel. He shared this uh, testimony. He said it was one of the most powerful and moving testimonies I've ever encountered. A former sex worker, drug addict, and dealer described how she had reached a point in which, in her own words, she was dead. She said her blood was black and her heart was black. She described how she had come to them and heard that Jesus loved her so much that he died for her. And she described how this reality sank into her heart and broke the concrete of her heart. She then experienced God's love for the first time. And she is now filled with love for everyone, forgiving those who had abused her and radiating the love of Christ. Do you hear it? Life, not death. Covering, not shame. Hope, not despair. It was true for her, and it's true for us now today. The truth is all of us have things deep within us that we are trying to cover up, things that steal our hope and our joy. But today, God says, take courage. Let me cover you in my grace, in my blood. Let me cover you so that you receive life and receive hope. We can have hope because no sooner have we reached out than God chose to pursue us and cover us so that the debt marked by the sword, could ultimately in the universe be paid. Please hear that as a word of hope today, church, so that even in this crazy COVID time, we too can have church, can have hope as a church, as a church and as individuals. We can have hope because God has won the victory. As a church, to be covered in this kind of hope means that in this new ministry landscape, we hope because even though there's no experts, there are elements of faithfulness that we can leverage to face the challenges of our day. We hope because even though there is no fast track for instant success based on old models, we can explore and ideate and create with God to move into our future in new ways. We hope because even though there's no way to avoid resistance to change, we can be ready for it when it comes. We hope because while there are no short cuts. We are not left to do this work alone, and we hope because the good news of Jesus Christ is still the good news of the world, and this church, God's church, is meant to embody and witness and share that love in our world. In this time of new beginning, we as God's church can be covered in the love and grace of God and live and move forward in new ways, and it's not just for us as a church as a whole. It also means for us to be covered as individuals in the love and the grace of God. We can know that as well. We know we are covered when we start to realize that we don't have so much trouble letting people see who we really are. When we are covered in the grace of Christ, we can rest in God's covering and admit when we're wrong and not have to spin everything and not have to prove that we're right all the time. When we are covered in God's love and God's grace, we will not be the kind of people who need to, put, need to put other people down or put them in our place in order to feel okay about ourselves. Again, we don't have to win every single argument. When we are covered in God's love and God's grace, we're not scared to confront others with their faults because our approval is no longer based on them. 
And when we are covered in the love and the grace of God, we can learn to ask ourselves honestly, is there anything in my life that's a good thing that I'm trying to cover myself in instead of relying solely on the grace and love found in Jesus Christ? All of these become marks of the hope of a people covered in God's love and grace that brings healing in ourselves and in our world. Back to Jax for a moment. If all goes well for Jax, he will soon be running and playing and doing all the things he did before just as he was intended. That cast, that covering though, is bringing the healing he needs. But somebody had to pay for that cast and thankfully he has two loving parents who took care of that for him. And you know what? We too have a loving parent a loving father, God Almighty, who paid the debt, the ultimate debt, to cover us so that we too can experience healing from our brokenness and our sin. We too have a loving father who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We too have a loving father who shows us enough in every single way so that we no longer have to reach. A few names might be written on Jax's cast, but all of our names can be written in the Lamb's Book of Life as we welcome Christ into our soul, into our lives, into our being. We too have a Father who has promised in every way to cover our debt so that we can experience the good life that God intended for us, just as he did in the beginning in Genesis, in creation. May today be that day for us, a day of new beginnings. May today be a new beginning as we welcome Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior into our lives. And may today be a day of new beginnings of hope and of life and of goodness and of beauty and of purpose and of relationship. Let us begin again with Christ our Lord, who intended all to be very good. May it be so.